Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. My name is Jeff Pickering, and I am your usual host for these conversations on the podcast. But this week, I'm going to turn things over to Travis Wusso, our VP of Public Policy, who many of you know. That's because Travis hosted a panel at our Evangelicals for Life conference last Friday. Uh, So this 2021 Evangelicals for Life conference looked different like everything does in this pandemic world that we are living in. As the March for Life in Washington last week went digital, uh, all virtual and online with a small group of us in D.C. actually making the march, so did our annual EFL conference. Um, So this EFL conference was all online, and I will have uh, links to it in the show notes if you would like to watch watch the other uh, keynotes and uh, the other videos and conversations that happened at that conference. So the theme of this year's EFL was the future of the pro-life movement and the road to row 50. It was really an incredible conference that I would encourage you uh, to not only listen to the conversation that we're going to bring you on this week's podcast, but also go check it out. Go check out the rest of the keynotes. Uh, Hear from Elizabeth Graham, who was on the podcast last week, from Russell Moore, ERLC's president, brought a keynote, as well as our friends Lauren McAfee and Benjamin Watson. Uh, It was a great event, the first of its kind for us here at the ERLC, being all online. But I think you will really find it beneficial to your life and uh, in your ministry. I know we have many uh, pro-life advocates who listen to this podcast. I think you'll be really encouraged by the content. Uh, This particular conversation that you will hear hosted by, again, like I said, Travis, uh, is uh, with Advocates here in D.C., friends of ours at the ERLC who have been on the front lines of these uh, important pro-life policy conversations uh, and advocacy efforts, and they talk about uh, pro-life policy at the federal and at the state level. I won't uh, ruin too much of Travis's own introduction uh, to the panel by going into it here, other than to say, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and find it helpful as uh, you, like many other people, are considering what does the future of pro-life policy advocacy look like uh, in a Biden presidency and for the 117th Congress where Capitol Hill is really evenly divided, but the Democratic Party Uh, is in the majority in both the House and the Senate. Uh, But there's also been lots of movement at the state level as well. So uh, this panel gets all into these kinds of policy discussions, and I think you will enjoy hearing from it. Uh, So I will turn it over to Travis now. Today I'm joined by several leaders who work on pro-life policy before all branches of the federal government, uh, as well as before the states. A new Congress has, has convened, a new president has been sworn in, and a new party is taking control of the White House and the United States Senate. And we're going to be talking today about the implications of the 2020 elections on pro-life public policy and what pro-life Christians can expect over the coming year. We're also going to talk about the implications of those 2020 elections on state legislatures and what, what we might be able to expect coming out of the states. But we hope our panel today is going to help you not just understand where things are headed, uh, but also to get a sense of how you can get involved at the state and federal level. Our hope is that evangelicals who care about life, our engagement with politics isn't just a decision that we make every four years or 
two years, but as a regular commitment to engage with our elected officials and make sure that our voices are heard the other days of the year as well. So uh, let me start out by introducing our speakers here today. So first, I want to introduce to you Chelsea Soblick. Uh, Chelsea, uh, my colleague, serves as uh, policy director for the ERLC. Uh, previously, she worked in the U.S. House of Representatives on pro-life policies, domestic and international religious freedom, adoption, and foster care issues. Uh, next, we have Denise Harl. Denise serves as senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. Denise uh, focuses her litigation efforts on defending the First Amendment freedoms uh, of pro-life healthcare professionals and pregnancy resource centers. She has also works to defend pro-life legislation around the nation. Uh, since joining ADF, Denise took the primary role in drafting the briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, NIFLA v. Becerra, resulting in a free speech victory for California pro-life pregnancy centers. Uh, and then last, we have Steve Aiden. Steve serves as the Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel for Americans United for Life. Steve is an experienced litigator. He's appeared in court against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry dozens and dozens of times uh, and has been appointed by uh, the Attorneys General of six states to defend pro-life laws, securing numerous victories. So we've got a great panel here today. Uh, let's jump into our discussion. So Chelsea, I wanna to come to you first and start off by talking about this new Congress. As I just mentioned, the 117th Congress is, uh, is now underway and the 117th is under unified control by the Democratic Party, with, although with, with very thin margins. What are ERLC's legislative priorities for the next year that, that touch on pro-life uh, issues? Yeah, Travis, thank you so much. Um, like you said, the Biden administration and the, the makeup of the Congress um, looking the way they do, uh, there is little that we can do to advance federal pro-life policies. However, I think it's important to make one distinction in the Senate, and then I will get to our uh, pro-life policies for this Congress. Senator Joe Manchin is a Democrat from West Virginia, and he identifies himself as pro-life. And he has voted for pro-life pieces of legislation in past Congresses, including the pain-capable bill and the born-alive bill. And he's also one of the most moderate Democrats in the Senate. So it will be very interesting to see how he counters, how or if he counters his party on the issue of abortion. Obviously, his, his vote is not enough to advance pro-life pieces of legislation out of the Senate, but that is something to, to keep an eye on. Um, but our focus for uh, this next session of Congress is kind of holding a line and making sure that um, historic pro-life writers, um, such as the Hyde Amendment, the Weldon Amendment, and others are maintained and included in congressional appropriations processes. What this means is, um, you know, the one that most people are probably familiar with is the Hyde Amendment, that has been around since the 1970s and historically has been a bipartisan writer that is attached to the appropriations process. Um, it's estimated that this amendment has saved um, over 2 million lives um, since it was enacted in the 1970s. So that's certainly you know, one that a lot of people are familiar with, um, and it prevents federal dollars from paying for abortion. A couple of the other lesser known ones, so the general public that are still extremely important and that we're going to be advocating for are the Weldon Amendment, which was first passed in 2005, 
and that uh, protects healthcare providers from discrimination on the basis of their refusal to participate in or provide or pay for abortion. The Helms Amendment prevents federal aid from paying for abortions um, overseas, and there's a handful of others that we are keeping an eye on and going to be um, advocating that stay as, you know, traditional historic writers in the appropriations process. Uh, We think that these should not be partisan. Unfortunately, um, they've become partisan, but we are going to make the case that they shouldn't be. Um, A couple of other things to note, again, these will not advance out of the House uh, chamber or out of the Senate chamber, but they will likely be introduced, is the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Um, This act has passed the Senate before, but obviously with the Democrat-controlled House, it has not has not moved over there, but uh, current federal um, law does not adequately protect a child who is um, born alive after a failed abortion. So this law would adequately protect that child um, to the full extent um, legally and medically. And then the second one I mentioned is the pain capable bill. Um, That would just simply say that once a, a child is capable of feeling pain in the womb, estimates say about 20 weeks, but um, newer research has said it's even earlier, but the, the language in the bill says says after 20 weeks, um, abortion would not be allowed because that, that unborn child is capable of feeling pain. And then the last one to touch on is the Conscience Protection Act. Again, we don't foresee this moving, but we will continue to advocate for it and highlight its importance. Um, but this would just protect um, healthcare workers' consciences from um, being involved in abortion. So that's kind of a a quick recap of some of the things that we're going to be keeping an eye on and advocating for. That's great, Chelsea. Uh, So Steve, I want to come to you next. We talked about uh, legislation at the federal level, but I want to ask you about about what's happening at the states. Uh, What are, you know, the, not not every state has the same sort of level of political gridlock as we're seeing on the federal level. So what what are some of the proactive state laws that you're working on this year. Uh, Give us some good news and and give us some states to watch this coming year. Travis, there is a lot of good news and I'm glad to be able to say that. Um, The climate for protecting life in the states has actually never been better. Uh, Beginning about 12 years ago, there have been hundreds of pro-life laws passed all over the country. And uh, those laws are making their way up through the federal courts. Many of them are being upheld. Uh, Many challenges by Planned Parenthood and the Center for Reproductive Rights are being dismissed. And uh, that's all good. So I think that state lawmakers understand that. And uh, despite limitations, unfortunately, that COVID has imposed, um, they are very, very animated and energized uh, to protect life through legislation. Last uh, fall, at the end of last fall, we were privileged to announce that Arkansas is uh, our number one state on our defending life list. It's the most pro-life state in America. Every year we rank them all, one to 50. And uh, this year, Arkansas made it to the top. But the reason Arkansas made it to the top was that they passed 10 pro-life laws in 2019. Some of them were enjoined by federal courts, but they fought hard and they came back. And after June Medical, which Denise is going to talk about, several of them were upheld enough to propel Arkansas into the top rank. So this year, we hear a lot about chemical abortion. And the good news there is that even though we expect the Biden administration to be very soft on the regulation of RU46, 
perhaps even pushing the FDA to loosen restrictions on RU46 chemical abortion. There's a lot the states can do. And we're working with a coalition of uh, partners such as Susan B. Anthony List uh, to propose new model legislation that will comprehensively regulate chemical abortion. So we're pushing that a lot. There's already three or four states that have expressed interest in running that bill. And um, in addition to that, uh, the Supreme Court will soon take up the question of defunding Planned Parenthood again, I believe, because uh, there's a split in the courts over whether states can defund Planned Parenthood from the Medicaid program, which is the lion's share of what they get in terms of public tax dollars. They get several hundreds of millions annually from Medicaid family planning. And so that's a big question, a big fight. Texas had uh, defunded them and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just ruled that uh, they could do that and that uh, the Medicaid Act did not stop them from doing that. So now that's a clear circuit split. And I expect a lot of states will take up the question once again of how to defund Planned Parenthood and other abortionists from programs like Medicaid and Title X. Uh, Title X funding is under a big question mark now that the Biden administration has come in. We expect them to move to strike the protect life rule, which required if abortionists, if they wanted to get Title X funding for federal family planning, to split their abortion services and their family planning services and uh, keep that money out of the abortion services, keep those, uh, that taxpayer funding from going to abortion. We expect the Biden administration will uh, change that rule and probably mostly or entirely rescind it, but there's a lot the states can do once again to make sure that uh, Planned Parenthood and other abortions are, don't have their, uh, their hands in the cookie jar of uh, taxpayer funding. So those are some of the highlights I see. We expect a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm at the state level this year, uh, and we're very blessed and privileged to be a big part of it. Thank you. That's great, uh, Steve. So Denise, I want to come to you next and and talk, you know, Steve sort of foreshadowed some of this discussion, but before we get into what we're expecting this year, uh, let's let's take a step back and, and look at the big pro-life case from last term. Steve just mentioned it ago, June Medical Services uh, v. Russo. What was that case about? How did the court rule and, and what are the implications of this case moving forward? Yeah, thanks. And I'll just say I'm so glad to be on a panel with other optimists because um, our God is awesome. <laughs> And I am eternally hopeful, and we have every reason to be hopeful right now um, on the life issue, for sure. Um, one reason, surprisingly, might be uh, June Medical Services v. Russo, which some of you may have heard about. Um, it was the only abortion case that the Supreme Court has heard in several years. Um, there was a lot of buildup because we were looking to see what the two new justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, might do, what the effect would be. The law that was challenged there was a Louisiana law that required admitting privileges for physicians performing abortions. Basically, it just it was sort of a vetting process to ensure that the physicians were not committing malpractice, that they had enough credibility to at least have an affiliation with a hospital, and to be able to transfer patients there when something went wrong during an abortion. Um, so it wasn't like a, a purely pro-life law, like some of the other ones we get really excited about, but the right to abortion was really the critical issue. And despite a lot of optimism um, and a lot of buildup, we got a really uh, gut punch decision when the court struck down the law um, in a 414 with Chief Justice Roberts' opinion was the one concurrence 
which was the controlling opinion. And amazingly, it was sort of a, a gift in disguise, I would say, because the more um, we read through the opinion and as soon as we started seeing the lower courts applying it, we realized that in a very clever way, Chief Justice Roberts had knocked down some of the um, abortion advocates' arguments over the past several years. Um, and what he essentially said is that the rule we're operating under right now is the same rule that the Supreme Court promulgated in 1992 in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, and that's not a bad thing because as Steve mentioned, like we have had hundreds of pro-life laws passed under the Casey standard and upheld under the Casey standard. And we've seen abortion numbers go way down. And I do credit those pro-life laws um, at the state level for the drop, for some of the drop in abortion. A lot of it is also the work of pro-life pregnancy centers at the same time and other, other factors. But just to give you a picture of some of what has come out of June Medical Services, almost immediately Planned Parenthood dropped a lawsuit in um, the Seventh Circuit where they were challenging Indiana's ultrasound law and 18-hour waiting period on abortion. Um, they since then have dropped another lawsuit in Arizona uh, where they were challenging a, a handful of pro-life laws there, um, different informed consent laws. And we've already seen the federal appeals courts grappling with the standard. And what it looks like is applying it in a way that we should be thankful for. Because what the chief justice's opinion said is that states can regulate abortion so long as it's reasonably related to a legitimate purpose. Uh, and then that does give states a lot of leeway. And I think the takeaway um, at the state and local level really is what Steve said, which is just keep doing what you're doing. Um, and, you know, incorporate science, incorporate what we know through ultrasound and technology about the heartbeat now. And we have 4D ultrasounds and we know about pa fetal pain, as Chelsea mentioned. And so I hope when you, you know, hear about June Medical Services, you don't feel discouraged about the, the future of Roe or, or the makeup of the Supreme Court, um, because we're, we're in an A-OK -okay place right now. What was missed by many over the last uh, few months was a major fail by the abortion industry's lawyers. As Denise mentioned, just before Justice Anthony Kennedy retired from the court, they thought that uh, history and uh, time was on their side. And so they filed six lawsuits across the country seeking basically to nullify all the abortion laws in six states, Virginia, Louisiana, Texas, Indiana, Arizona, uh, and they banked on, honestly, they banked on a presidency of Hillary Clinton and they banked on a good Supreme Court going forward. Well, uh, time and the sovereignty of God had other plans. And now we have three new uh, committed constitutionalists on the, on the Supreme Court and uh, things are very different. Uh, and so after June Medical, as Denise mentioned, they saw the handwriting on the wall. They dismissed their lawsuit in Louisiana uh, and that was actually the same plaintiff, June Medical Services, that was in that lawsuit. They dismissed that lawsuit. So they had just won in the Supreme Court and they dismissed their other lawsuit. That should tell you if they felt like winners or not, right? They dismissed their omnibus lawsuit in Indiana, uh, in Texas. And uh, as Denise mentioned in Arizona, the only place they had any success was in Virginia. And uh, unfortunately that was because the uh, Virginia legislature changed and did their dirty work for them and uh, struck the abortion laws, most of them off the books here in our beloved old dominion. Uh, but we're not done fighting here either. So that's a 
that's a great success story on the part of the pro-life movement and uh, lawyers like Denise and myself. And uh, we're just going to keep fighting because now we have the wind be- we have the wind at our backs and we're going downhill. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more good things coming from the Supreme Court, like uh, like we saw the other day with the Supreme Court decision affirming the uh, Food and Drug Administration's regulations of RU46. And that was a huge, huge win there as well. Well, let's sort of stay on that theme and talk about what, what cases are, are are coming up. I mean, I'll, I'll say, Denise, I really appreciate your your background on on June. I mean, we, like uh, like a lot of organizations, were really discouraged when the opinion originally when it initially came out, but as as you've said, there certainly is more more than meets the eye. But as we're we're sort of looking ahead to uh, what cases are, are moving through the states, you know, give us you know give us a snapshot of a couple of cases that you're paying attention to, and, uh, and a couple of cases that you're encouraged by. Well, top of the list is a case that the Supreme Court will be conferencing tomorrow, um, which will be in the past, I guess, um, might be hot news by the time that um, we're all hearing this in real time, I suppose. And that is a Mississippi case, um, the Mississippi 15-week gestational limit law called DOPS. And um, that case has been rescheduled several times, meaning at least one of the justices is taking a really hard look and perhaps is planning to um, issue a statement or a dissent from potentially a cert grant. Um, And so we are really hopeful with that case because it is a representation of some of the laws that we're we're encouraging. We have model legislation, uh, 20-week limits, 18-week limits, 15-week limits. And if I can encapsulate why these are so important, um, the fundamental rule out of Roe is that um, there's a right to abortion, you know, almost unrestricted, I suppose. Um, you know, the government can't put a substantial obstacle in the way of abortion pre-viability. And so that viability line at the time that it was decided was, you know, maybe 27, 28 weeks, something like that with science and medicine advances. We're now down around maybe 21 weeks, 22 weeks. And so any law that is before that viability line is a test of Roe. And so a ruling upholding that law would automatically undermine Roe in a substantial way. Yet at the same time, we have a lot of good basis for these bills. I mean, by 15 weeks, there are so many things that that little human baby is doing. We know about all of the fingers and toes and the organs and the heartbeat and the brain waves and the pain and the movement. And so we have great arguments for why those are perfectly reasonable laws to protect human life. Um, so Dobbs is the one that is the furthest along. Um, that would be so exciting if the Supreme Court takes that up. The other category that I think is one to watch is my personal favorite, the um, discriminatory abortion bans. And so several states have passed laws banning abortion based on sex, race, or disability. That's a phenomenal approach because it highlights the humanity of the baby um, instead of Mm -hmm. making it look like what, what the mother can and can't do. And it's also so intuitive because in our laws, we have so many protections for protect people from being discriminated against based on their sex or their race or any sort of disability. I mean, we go above and beyond. That's just off the table. That can't be done. So to give a protection for someone to not be fatally discriminated against, lethally discriminated against, killed, truly killed for the because they're a girl or because she's part African-American is 
is so common sense. And I think it would draw a wider consensus than maybe some of these other laws would, because that just resonates with a lot of people that discrimination is abhorrent um, in any context. Again, those laws are an awesome test to row because thanks to medicine, we know, uh, you know the gender of the baby out of you know, usually maybe 10 to 13 weeks now with certain tests. We can know disabilities very early on before viability. Um, race can be known, you know, potentially immediately. And so rulings upholding those laws, which are already at the federal appeals court stage, so almost to the Supreme Court, would again be a direct push against Roe. That's great, Denise. That's all of those cases you mentioned are very are very encouraging. We'll continue to keep our eyes uh, on those. Um, so we've talked about the legislative branch. We've talked about the judiciary. I want to shift gears, uh, Chelsea, and come back to you and talk about the new executive branch. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this, President Joe Biden has announced his intention to nominate California Attorney General uh, Javier Becerra to lead the, the Department of Health and Human Services. What are the administrative actions that uh, you're expecting this administration uh, to take that pro-life Christians should be uh, focused on and, and concerned about? Well, unfortunately, I have the role on this panel of being the pessimist, so I'm so grateful that um, others can play the role of the optimist. Um, I want to kind of shed some light on um, Mr. Basira's background. He was previously a House member in the U.S. House of Representatives, and he voted against investigating Planned Parenthood over the sale of fetal tissue. He voted against the partial birth abortion ban. He voted against the Born Alive Bill and the Pain Capable Bill and the Conscience Protection Act. So those are some of the actions he took as a House member. Um, Denise would probably be able to go a lot more um, into detail um, with his actions as an attorney general, but just to highlight a few, he has spent his career um, in that role targeting pro-life pregnancy centers and the Little Sisters of the Poor who have been before courts for almost a decade trying to fight for their conscience protection. So he is definitely um, very vocal about being um, anti-life pro-abortion at every turn and being um, very extreme pro-abortion. So to highlight a little bit of his background and then you know, President Biden has not been shy about telling us what actions he would take. I think one of the most interesting things to note is his reversal with his position on the Hyde Amendment. You know, he has been, historically, he had been um, a supporter of the Hyde Amendment since it was first introduced, even though the majority of his party was not a supporter of the Hyde Amendment. And he even began his presidential campaign as a supporter of the Hyde Amendment. Um, but unfortunately, he caved pressure and reversed his position on it. And then in his campaign promises, you know, he stated that he would work to end the Hyde Amendment. And and let me just be clear about what, what that would mean. Um, it would essentially mean that federal dollars for abortion would be available on demand. Um, and it's yet another signal that the abortion lobby, you know, for so long, they said abortion is safe, legal, and rare. And over the past few years, we have seen them shift to, you know, abortion on demand at any time for any reason at no cost. So we've seen that shift at all levels of the Democratic Party. So um, he would, you know, seek to reverse the, or remove the Hyde Amendment. He would also um, target a lot of the executive actions that President Trump has taken, um, you know, a key one would be rescinding the Mexico City policy 
um, which President Trump has actually expanded, and it's currently known as the Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance Policy. Um, this policy has kind of played ping pong back and forth between administrations with a Republican, you know, pro-life administration. It, it's gone back and forth. So I, I think he would um, rescind that Um policy. He would also likely rescind several of the very important HHS rules that protect um, the consciences of millions of Americans and um, in particular healthcare workers. And he has also promised, this one's not an executive action per se, but he's also promised to work with advocates across the country to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, a little background on the ERA, it is a proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would clarify men and women that we have equal rights throughout the United States, which sounds good on paper, but what it would essentially do is it would enshrine abortion rights into the U.S. Constitution. Um, so he has promised to work with states to ratify that. So those are just a couple of the, the things that we expect him to take. Again, he's been very clear. You can go on his presidential campaign page and see all of these um, campaign promises. Let me just add that um, some of those we can sue over and we will, and some of them we can't, but I just want to say something else about the Hyde Amendment because um, it's really been on my heart. The Hyde Amendment was first uh, introduced in 1976, right after Roe, because uh, most people understood that taxpayers don't want their money going to elective abortions. Um, Joe Biden, so it's what been here or been around for 45 years. Congress takes it up every year. As we all have heard, Joe Biden also has been around for about 45 years and um, was an open supporter. He identifies as a Catholic. And like you said, he launched his campaign supporting the Hyde Amendment. And then he waffled and then he switched, you know, sometime in the past year. And so I'm just floating it out there that I think it's an area of prayer for us that we can pray that he um, stands firm with that and that, um, you know, other pro-life Democrats, Joe Manchin, others um, come together and, you know, draw the line somewhere before yanking away that protection that's been around essentially since abortion became legal. Yeah, that's so true. That was, you know, the Hyde Amendment is job one, I think, for the pro-life movement at the federal level. We've got to save Hyde because Hyde has saved two and a half million people you know, the people that study this, uh, folks like Dr. Michael New at Catholic University and others say that uh, while pro-life laws do uh, a lot of good, some of them are more effective than others. And there's nothing that moves the needle more on abortion than uh, taxpayer funding, Medicaid funding, where there is taxpayer funding in places like California, New York, uh, by state law, abortion on demand is extremely high. Uh, where it isn't allowed uh, by state law, uh, abortion is lower. And that's gotta be uh, a major effort on the part of everybody in the movement uh, to keep the Hyde Amendment. So uh, if you have an inclination to send calls and letters, uh, send them to uh, folks like Joe Manchin, who's been a friend of the movement a lot, uh, and to others who can be moved on this issue. Uh, and hopefully, prayerfully, uh, we'll save the Hyde Amendment and many, many millions more. I think that's a good point. And even if, you know, our country disagrees on the issue of abortion, we all ought to be able to agree that our taxpayer dollars don't have to be wrapped up in it. So I appreciate I appreciate those points. Well, our hope with this 
this is not just to inform you on what's coming and, and, and what to expect over the next year in terms of public policy, but our hope is to equip you to engage elected officials at the state and federal level uh, on the days in between election days. And so just as we've been talking about, there, there are a number of uh, laws that protect human life, that protect our consciences, that are, uh, are in danger this year, and we're going to need your help. Uh, to uh, to defend and and protect those laws. So I just want to thank our our panelists for their for their comments. This has been a rich discussion. Uh, thank you all for for making the time to be with us today, uh, and for your work uh, on on these important issues. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Again, you just heard a panel conversation from our Evangelicals for Life 2021 conference. To watch the rest of the keynotes from that conference, go check out the link in our show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or a family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It really will help others find our show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week. Capital Conversations.